Okay, scripture reading for today comes to us from Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 25. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 25. And this is the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And we saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and awoke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened that for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, church. 
Today we're back in our series in the book of Acts, as I promised we'd be, and uh, for several chapters now, the author Luke has been showing us how the gospel has spread from the small city of Jerusalem to Samaria and even to the surrounding Gentile nations, right? But here in chapter 12, Luke takes us back to Jerusalem, and he wants us to see what took place in Jerusalem during this particular time in history, which was, by the way, the year 44 AD, right? The best sources tell me it was 44 AD. So I want you to think about what it would have felt like being a Christian living in that time period, right? Roughly... We could say 13, 14 years prior, Jesus was crucified on the cross and the early church exploded. And Stephen, as we covered, he was one of, the, one of the first deacons, right? He was martyred roughly, we can say, nine to ten years ago. And as we studied together, you know, Stephen's bold testimony led to a greater season of persecution for the church but despite the persecution, up until this point, all of the original apostles, their lives were still preserved. Uh, in our chapter today, what we basically see is King Herod, this, this ruthless character, threatening the church and, and really for the first time plotting to take the life of two of the original 12 apostles, namely James and Peter. And as we've just read, you know, James does become the first apostle whose life is taken. And, and Peter is expected to be executed next, but God basically says, not yet. You will not yet take him. And he miraculously rescues Peter. And then at the end of the chapter, we see God striking down Herod as judgments upon his head. And that's basically how chapter 12 reads. And so, it was a long chapter, a lot of details, I, I know. But uh, what I'd like to do this morning is, is simply ask the question, okay, uh, what are we supposed to learn from these series of events? Why, why did the author, Luke, specifically take us back to Jerusalem and record these events in this particular order? Right, so uh, with that in mind, here is a simple outline for today. I, I chose to do a two-part message. You can thank me later. Part, part one, the plight of abusive tyrants. Okay, the plight of abusive tyrants. And part two, the resilience of the church. So it's just two things, two themes I want to explore with you today. So part one, the plight of abusive tyrants. If you're like me, you've asked yourself this question before. Why in the world are there so many King Herods in the Bible? How many of you asked that question? Why are there so many King Herods in the Bible? Can't, can't keep track, really, really. You know, is this King Herod just one guy who happened to like reign for a long period of time? Or are these different people? And the answer is what? There are different people, right? 
but they're related to each other. Uh, so you can consider it a cursed lineage of abusive tyrants. Essentially, that's what they are. Uh, another name for them, you know, people have historically called them the Herodian dynasty, right? They, 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 they make up the Herodian dynasty. That's what they are. Now, the Herod mentioned in our passage today is also known as, here's his full name, Herod Agrippa I, okay? That's who he is. Uh, he is the grandson of Herod the Great. And uh, you'll be familiar with Herod the Great because that's the guy we normally read about during Christmas. You know, Herod the Great was the one who issued the decree to kill all of the male children, children in Bethlehem. I've been having a hard time speaking this morning for whatever reason. Um, one of Herod the Great's sons was named Herod Antipas, or Antipas, however you want to pronounce it. And he was the one involved in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Herod Antipas was also the one responsible for beheading John the Baptist, right? And so there are basically three different Herods that you ought to be able to distinguish. And what they all have in common is that they all play the role of the ruthless tyrant in the biblical story. Okay? Now, let me mention a few details uh, we see here in our story today that uh, are meant to help us better understand the character, the ruthless character of Herod Agrippa I, okay? First, the author Luke highlights for us Herod's violent character. He was a violent man. Verse 1, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So it wasn't just James and Peter. There were a few others. But here, Luke highlights for us James and Peter. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword, we read. And so just like his uncle Antipas, right, uh, who lopped off John the Baptist's head, it's, it's likely that Agrippa used the sword in the same manner to kill the apostle James. And by the way, this is the same James whose mother asked Jesus to allow her sons, James and John, to sit at his right and at his left in his kingdom. And so think about it. Now, James was hoping to receive a special place of privilege in God's kingdom. And I have, I have no doubt that God granted a special privilege, uh, a place of privilege to James. But uh, he also became the first, the very first apostle to be martyred for his faith by a very violent man. And I'm sure... That's not something James uh, was expecting at all, but that was part of his story. He was struck down by a very violent man. Secondly, we see that Herod was opportunistic, and I would say a rather meticulous politician, right? Uh, he didn't cut corners, very strategic and meticulous. Verse 3, we read, when he saw the execution of James, and that it pleased the Jews, he then proceeded to arrest Peter also. Right? What does that tell you? This means that if it was clear 
that James's execution did not please the Jews, then he would have not, you know, pursued Peter. He was opportunistic. And this is how, unfortunately, most people are. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of us are guilty of this too, but, you know, we're driven by popularity. And if it's clear that a given idea is popular or becoming more and more popular, even if we were against it before, right, because it's now popular, all of a sudden now, now we think we should be for it. You know, we somehow change our minds depending on the cultural winds of our day. We, we're seeing it now in our culture, uh, even in the church. So Herod, in this way, I mean, he was, I guess, very typical, a typical politician, shall we say? He was opportunistic. It says also in verse 4 that Herod had four squads of soldiers guarding Peter. Okay, commentators say that uh, there were four soldiers in each squad. That's how uh, the Romans did it, and it's believed that Herod essentially adopts Roman procedures here, okay, in this story. And so, four soldiers in each squad, do the math, how many? <laughs> like 16, right? But you, you, you shouldn't be thinking of like 16 soldiers, like, following Peter around and surrounding him. It's really not the accurate picture. Uh, most likely, very likely, it was that um, these squads, they, they rotated, right? They were in charge of, uh, I guess, taking three-hour shifts right, to cover uh, the evening watch. That, that's how it was. There were four watches of the night, uh, that's how they divided the time, you know, dividing the 12, 12 hours that uh, covered the evening, the, the night, and they divided. And so each squad was responsible for a three-hour shift. Again, and it, it tells us that Herod, he wasn't fooling around here. He essentially, based on his own standards and the standards of the day, he put Peter in maximum, a maximum security prison, right? And he knew, like he knew very well what had happened to Jesus' body just a few years ago. And so I'm sure in his mind, he did not want anything like that to happen to him under his watch. He wanted to make sure that this body was, was you know, <laughs> it, it stayed put in prison. Uh, so he's being very thorough and meticulous. Thirdly, uh, Luke highlights for us this man's pride and arrogance, which ultimately leads to his death. 21, verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and, and not of man, basically worshiping him, right? Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's believed that Herod's royal robes were made of silver and that it would have been glittering, literally, radiant in the sun. And the historian Josephus writes, it would have inspired awe in those who gazed upon it. It was intentional, you know, silver, sun shining. He wanted to actually uh, present himself like a god. And so, I, I've shared this with you before, but in chapter 10, right, 
when Cornelius, the centurion, fell down to worship the apostle Peter, how did Peter respond? You remember? Peter responded with, no, 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 no. You're not to bow down to me. Stand up, please. I am just a man, right? We bow together to Jesus. In contrast, it says here that Herod received worship from people but did not give glory to God, right? The author Luke is intentionally uh, presenting a contrast here. And God uses this occasion to give to Herod what he rightly deserved, which was judgment and death. So given all that's been said so far, I want you to think about how these events would have been understood and interpreted by the early Christians. And it's like one of your main leaders, or James, one of the apostles, for the very first time, an apostle gets struck down and is taken, and now Peter, the chief apostle, is likely to die as well. But then God intervenes, he rescues Peter, and he strikes down the tyrant Herod instead. What do you think, how do you think the Christians would have responded to this kind of unfolding of history? Well, don't you think that they would have been encouraged by a God who claims sovereignty even over this tyrant king? You know, I found this to be helpful. Uh, think, think about these, these details. You know, uh, Luke, he actually completed this book several years later, uh, roughly 20 years later, right? And so it wasn't as if these events happened and then boom, you know, the book of Acts was available, okay? 20 years later, he, this, this book is made available to the Christians, most likely around 62 AD, okay? Um, but it would also be helpful to know that between 60 AD and 80 AD, like that 20-year time period, uh, Virtually all of the apostles are put to death. You know, it was ex an extremely violent time for the Christian church. And the only person that is able to enjoy a long life, I, I shouldn't say enjoy because, I mean, he was basically exiled. Uh, life was difficult for him too. But John, right, James's brother, John, uh, is, is the only one that survives beyond this time period. And so think about it. When, when this book was being read for the first time by Christians, right, uh, severe persecution, like far more severe persecution than the church ever experienced before was about to take place, right? The early church was about to lose not just one apostle, but six of the original apostles within the span of 10 years, and then Another 10 years after that, all the apostles would be taken down. That's the significance of what's going on here. And so I believe that one of the reasons why Luke would have recorded the death of Herod in this way, uh, it would have been to encourage believers right, who are about to experience hell, essentially, to hold fast to the Lord in faith, knowing that God does hold the wicked accountable, right? 
for them to know that God's justice will prevail in the end, that, that abusive tyrants are not given unbridled power forever. Right, to remind them that one day every power will be humbled before God. That would have been the message. That's how the early Christians would have understood this and interpreted this. Yes, our God is great. He will take care of us. He will bring forth his justice in his time. Brothers and sisters, Luke may have originally intended to encourage his fellow believers during the first century who are about to face such intense persecution, but let's remember, God has spoken these words with the intention to encourage us as well so that we would remain resilient in the face of the trials and hardships we face in this life, which now takes us to the second part of the message, okay? The resilience, the resilience of the church. I want you to notice the primary ways in which the early Christians responded to unjust persecution, okay? And I'm not suggesting that these are the only things that we're allowed to do or should be doing in the face of unjust treatment, okay? But I think we can at least say that these are the primary ways in which our faith should be expressed in the face of unjust treatment or hardship, whether we're facing them now or will face in the future. In the face of tyranny, the early church, we see, um, number one, responding in prayer. The church prayed, it says, verse five. And number two, this may sound strange to you, but I, I, I thought it's, still help, it's a helpful picture. Okay, it's gonna give you a helpful picture. We see Peter sleeping peacefully in jail, okay? And number three, it says the word of God increased and multiplied. And so let me share a few words about each of these activities, okay? Number one, the church prayed. It says in verse five, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, look, this doesn't mean, you shouldn't take this to mean that the church didn't pray for James, when he was in prison. I'm sure the church was also praying for James, right? But the thing is this, right? Um, James was the first apostle, as I've said, right, to die, right? That's significant. And because he was the first one to die out of all the apostles, it would have shaken the church in a dramatic way. You know, when, once, once James died, that's when the church realized that something now was different, that God was doing something different now, right? That times, the times are different. And I think that's why Luke emphasized the fact that the church prayed earnestly, not just pray, but they began to pray earnestly once Peter was also put in prison. Because it's like, you don't, you don't expect, you know, it's like everything was, look, it wasn't as if life was easy for them, but 
At least all the apostles were still alive. At least their main leaders were, leaders were still alive and, and active in ministry, you know? But then, see, once when James is gone and now Peter's in prison, that's when they started to really feel a sense of urgency and began to earnestly pray, God, help us. It's not as if God was less good or less trustworthy in their minds, but it was that God was now allowing his own apostles to be captured and even killed at the hands of tyrants. That was new. That was a new thing. And this should serve as a wake-up call for us as a church, too, because I, I think most of you see what I see. Okay, some of you probably don't. That's okay. But most of you see what I see. You, know? you see that things are very different now in our culture, right? The world has significantly changed over the past few years. And even our country has been undergoing this gradual process of a radical transformation, and it's not in a good way. And I think if you're spiritually awake, you will feel the need to pray with a greater sense of urgency. When you look around, God is now allowing greater forms of corruption and degradation in our culture to happen, right? Things that no one would have ever imagined possible even a decade ago. And so these changing times should compel us to pray more earnestly. Brothers, sisters, our primary weapon against earthly injustice or tyranny is not earthly politics, I'm not saying that you should not engage in politics. We all should care about what's going on and, and try to put in better people to run government. But as a church, as Christians, we must always remind ourselves that our primary weapon is not the weapons of this world, but it's prayer. It's prayer. And so may I ask that we devote more of our time and energy toward prayer over the coming months. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, we shall never see much change until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the minds of Christians. So I wanna ask you, has the prayer meeting occupied a high place in your mind yet. I know it's like always been down here, right? Sunday worship, probably the main party for virtually all of us, and then down here somewhere, the prayer meeting. <laughs> but may that change. You know, uh, thankfully the men's ministry has agreed to open up their prayer ministry to the whole church. Um, I'm thankful for that. You know, I, I'm always encouraged when our men initiate such things. I think that's a healthy thing. And so I, I want you to really consider, I know some of you may be busy uh, next Saturday, but I, I encourage all of you to consider joining in that meeting. It's going to be an online meeting, okay? It's, it's, it's early, but not that early. You know, our, our first generation, they gather like at 5.36 a.m., so 8 o'clock is actually late. <laughs> 
If you don't want to show your face, that's fine. You know, just kind of listen in and pray along with us. But let's be a praying church, especially over the next coming months. Amen? As you look at our passage, um, some of you may find this encouraging, but it's, it's funny how even these early Christians who at times seem so holy and, and godly in our mind, they, they sometimes seem untouchable, right? They seem, seem like, are these people for real? But you see in our passage today that they too cannot believe what they're seeing. I mean, Peter is standing outside the gate, <laughs> Rhoda, the servant girl, basically leaves him out there because she's so shocked and she runs to tell the, the group, Peter's back. He's out of prison and they, they cannot believe and basically they call her crazy. Right? You are crazy. Right? Stop spinning such crazy thoughts. That was their response. But what, what were they doing? They were praying though. They were praying for him specifically and I'm sure someone was praying, God, would you, you know, spare Spare his life, you know, from this wicked tyrant, Herod. I'm sure some prayers like that were lifted up. And so God essentially answers their prayer, but still they can't believe it. Right? That, that's kind of funny to me, you know. And in a weird way, it's also encouraging because it tells me that they were not superhuman. Right? They were just like us. People are people no matter what era we all need grace. We're all dependent upon a great God who does miracles. And so I, I hope you can relate to the early Christians. Right? Don't think that they're way above us or beyond us. They were just like us in a sense. And so let's, let's, let's pray together as a community, right? expecting, hoping that God would uh, fulfill his purpose and plans through us. Another thing we see here is uh, Peter. This is also a very, uh, I guess, humorous part of the story. But, you know, Peter is sleeping peacefully in jail. Uh, I just wanted to highlight <clears throat> just that, that thought, okay? I mean, there are other details in the account. But I'm, I'm just going to uh, point to you that this, this is really hard. This should be really hard for us to fathom, you know, how Peter was able to peacefully sleep while knowing that the very next morning he would likely be beheaded by this ruthless tyrant, Herod. You know, and, and um, I don't know about you, but when I'm sleeping and I hear four-year-old Joshua, you know, sort of like usually he does at around 4 a.m., 5 a.m., I think, today, it was about 5 a.m., 4.30. Uh, I, I hear his footsteps, little, his little feet, you know, kind of passing the entrance door, and then he goes to the foot of the bed, and then he crawls in between me and Joyce. Uh, but he doesn't come to me. Like, there's a significant gap, actually, usually between me and him. He just cozies up to Joyce, you know, and just to experiment, once I actually pulled him to me, right, he pushes me away. And he goes, like, he, he leans into Joyce. I heard Joyce this morning say, Joshua, can you give me a little more space? Yeah, that, that's who, he's a mama's boy, you know, mama's boy, spoiled. Um, 
uh, I hear, I hear everything. I, wait, I wake up, usually 4 a.m., 5 a.m. I mean, partly also because my bladder's full, but, you know, still, I, I, hear, I, <laughs> I hear his feet. And when Joyce wakes up, you know, to go to the bathroom, she closes the door usually and turns the light on. But even this small light, it, it wakes me up. But here, what do we see? Peter is sleeping. An angel appears. I'm sure this angel wasn't very quiet, you know. <laughs> Um, light is shining through the room, this powerful light. It wasn't a nightlight, guys. It was a blinding light, and Peter still sound asleep. Right? How is this humanly possible? And the angel has to, like, not, not only nudge him, but it says the angel struck him. <laughs> wake up! Wake up! Don't you realize you're going to be dead? And he, and the angel doesn't say that, but, like, dude, you're going to be dead tomorrow morning. How can he be so sound asleep? doesn't make any sense, at least to our ears. You know, I've been hearing from more people lately that they're not able to sleep very well. Is that true for you? They're not able to sleep very well because all of the drama that's happening in our country, and I can understand the anxiety one may feel, but listen to what Peter writes in one of his letters, right? The Peter who is sound asleep in jail. <laughs> he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Christians, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, right? casting all of your anxieties upon him because, you know what? He cares for you, Christian, you know? This, this, this passage really ministered to me this week. Just try to do that. Inject, you know, when you read Scripture, inject your name, right? Know that God is speaking to you. Humble yourself, Paul. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, right? Know that he cares for you, Paul. He who You know, this passage tells us that uh, one reason why we may feel anxious in life and not able to sleep well is because we don't actually believe that God cares for us. And that in our pride, we just, we can't trust his timing and how he will govern our lives. We just can't trust his timing. That, that's why Peter says, humble yourself, Christian. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, not your time, not my time, but at his proper time, it's his timing, that he will exalt you when he thinks the time is right. And it's, our, it's a call given to us to trust in his timing to make all things right, you see. We have to humble ourselves in order to trust him. And so, brothers and sisters, when we see Peter fast asleep on death row, it should cause us to examine whether it's our pride that is causing us to be so anxious in life. Right? One thing's for sure, and I've been saying this, I know, a lot, but... Uh, Brothers, sisters, 
There's also a clear call not to fear death as believers. You know, Peter, who was sound asleep, I mean, how can he be sleeping, you know, on death row unless death really doesn't scare you? Since we're always driving down Braddock Road, uh, let me ask you this. When you drive past Fairfax Memorial Park, what do you see? Okay. It's funny that they call it a park, you know. Uh, it's, like, it's basically a cemetery graveyard, right? But they call it a park. It sounds nicer. But maybe they, they know what they're doing, you know. Uh, but when you, when you drive down that park, what do you see? Do you only see headstones? All right. Do you only think of death? You know, next time you drive past that graveyard, right, instead of thinking of that place as a collection of dead bodies, think of that place as a large garden with thousands of seeds planted that will one day break the ground in the form of glorious resurrection bodies. Right? The graveyard is really a garden in the mind of God. And that should also be true for us as believers. That's how we ought to view death. In verse 24, we also read that the word of God increased and multiplied. I wanna ask this question before I uh, bring this message to a close. How is it possible, brothers, sisters, for the word of God to increase and multiply in the midst of such hardship and persecution? You know, you would think that hostile governments that have tried to snuff out Christianity throughout history would have succeeded at some point, right? But they've always failed. Even now, they continue to fail. Tyrants always try to destroy the Christian faith, but they're never successful. Do you know why that is? It's because of what J.I. Packer calls the law of harvest. It's based on John chapter 12 where Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Packer writes, before there is blessing anywhere, there will first be suffering somewhere. Scripture does not explain this, but simply sets it before us as a fact. It's like a law. And Jesus requires all who are his to live by the same law of harvest that he himself lived by, becoming the seed that dies to bring forth fruit. When we serve the Savior in this world, there are many such deaths to be died, but the call for us is to endure since God sanctifies our endurance for fruitfulness in the lives of others. Right? That means as we resolve to put ourselves to death and even literally die, right, we're having view that God's going to take that ministry of ours and produce fruitfulness in the lives of others, right? Of course, Jesus died so that we could live. I mean, that is the foundation of our faith, but 
what Packer is saying here, that this same principle right, of death and life, of dying to self so that others could live, is to be at work in the believer as well. And that's why the Apostle Paul was able to say in 2 Corinthians, death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, death is at work in, in us as leaders and apostles, but fellow brothers and sisters, life is at work in you. I die so that you could flourish and live. And it's not that the blood of the apostle or any human blood has the power to save. That's not what he's talking about. But it's that those who are truly saved by the blood of Christ are transformed fully into the image of Christ such that they begin to embody the humility of Christ and to live in the way Christ suffered and died for others. Ultimately, it's a supernatural work that is of God. And because it's a work of God, right? this, this law of harvest cannot be broken. And so, in closing, I want to say that this truth should serve as a great encouragement to us because this essentially means that God's work cannot be stopped. No matter how hostile this world becomes, the church can never be destroyed because the law of harvest will always prevail. I know that many of you are discouraged by what's happening in our world today, and for good reason. But let me remind you this morning that whatever you see, whatever you watch or hear on the news or through social media is definitely not the whole picture of what is happening in God's world. Now, please remember that whatever you listen to and watch is really only a very, very small fraction of what actually takes place in God's world every day, right? The news that we consume, it never, it never covers what goes on in the heavenly realm, in the unseen spiritual realm, which is, by the way, what ultimately matters in the long run, right? So yes, I'm, I am with most of you. I, I too get very upset every time I read or watch the news. I even get angered. But I need to remind myself that the most important news source is found in the very word of God. And we are told in God's word that God forever reigns and that he is never confused or overwhelmed because he is always in control and his purposes will always prevail. That is our hope. Brothers and sisters, know that in this day and age of social media, as one author put it so succinctly, we can easily become overwhelmed by burdens only God is meant to bear. So when you feel overwhelmed, right, I encourage you to cast your burdens upon him. Okay? And I'm not saying that you should just dig a hole and, and uh, stick your head in it, but I would strongly encourage you, especially during this season, to take in more of Scripture and less of anything else 
so that your soul could properly find rest in him. Here's a litmus test for all of you. If your heart is not thankful, if you're constantly overwhelmed by worry, fear, and anger, if you're living a joyless life, guess what? Your soul is not resting in the Lord. And you're not tuning in to the right kind of news source. So may we all humble ourselves before God's mighty hand and may the word of God increase and multiply in us and through us as Christ's body. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, you are the one who governs all things according to your sovereign wisdom and power. You are the one who gives and takes away. Death and life are in your hands. Even though all earthly kings and kingdoms rise and fall, your kingdom will last forever. As we learn to place our trust in you, may we not grow weary or anxious about the future. Rather, may we continue to be governed by your love and joy and peace. As Peter was able to sleep peacefully while in jail awaiting his execution, may we be given the grace to rest our souls in our Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the evil that surrounds us. We declare that you are good and holy now and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. Let's give praise to God.